0: It is in my great honor and privilege to introduce this man of God. And I have to testify the last time that he preached. No, matter of fact, the apostle preached. And I came up for prayer and I asked, and he asked me, what do you want to, what do you want me to pray about? And I said, what the preacher about? And he says, I'm going to go deep with you. And I said, okay, but it was not the words that I received. I left home talking to my wife about this and I said I felt I felt the power of that prayer the impartation the impartation of prayer is real but come to the front you have to believe you just don't come to the front and not believe in that the prayer that you are going to ask will be done in the name of Jesus and I have to testify that I left free Do you know that you can leave free without manifesting? Do you know that you can leave free without spitting? Without doing the whole thing of manifestation, demonic manifestation, but you can leave free? Because maybe you're not possessed, maybe you're just hurt but when the man of God imparts the sincerity that's in him and the pureness that's in him and he really prays for you, you receive in that impartation and you leave broken gracefully broken gracefully I'm not supposed to preach but I think I'm going to, no I'm not with you
1: <laughs> so
0: it's with great honor and privilege to introduce a brother of the house, you know him way before you know me Give a round of applause for Brother David. Amen. God bless you.
1: God bless you. God bless you. It's great to see you. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. My wife and I, we were greeting uh, people as they came in and during the worship. I said, "Look at that! Look at them dancing! Look at them!" The Holy Spirit. And then my wife reminded me, she said, do you remember at the barbecue yesterday? My wife heard some music, and she's Colombian, so she had to get out dancing and couldn't leave her alone. So so I started dancing. People were kind of looking at me. Um, So only I have the video of that. I won't share that. Um, Minister Eddie, a round of applause for Minister The pastors are on an assignment. Being on an assignment is a great thing. It's wonderful. So I, I praise them. I bless them. So they've asked me to attend. And I don't take it lightly. So I bless the pastors. They'll be back. You'll see them Wednesday. Give them a high five. Give them a fist bump. Say hello to them. But today they're on an assignment. Um. And I'm excited for them. So, so Minister Eddie, my, my watch here. My watch here. I'm looking at my watch. You know, my wife gave this to me for my 45th birthday. Minister, that was a long time ago. <laughs> so the watch is getting a little older. And uh, I came here, my wife and I, we, we arrive early to set things up, 10, 15. And, and it said, the end times. And it's been a couple hours later. It still says the end times. What do, watch that. The end times. It says the end times. What is it? What did, oh, look. Look, maybe I should look at this clock over here. Oh, no, look. Look at that. It says Now. What's that? It's the end times. It's it's always saying the same time. I don't understand that. It keeps saying the end times. Honey, I'm going to give this to you. Tell pastor we need another clock. It keeps saying the same time. So it's the end times. What have we been chatting about today? We've been talking about the signs of the end times. And the signs of the end times... There's four of them that the pastor has been introducing. We talked about the first one, the second one, and the third one. And now what is happening is we're going to close out the third one so that we'll be ready to start talking about the fourth sign. Okay? Before we close out the third sign of the end times, which we'll be talking about, we'll take a step back and we'll look at the environment we're looking in. We're going to paint the landscape. We're gonna first look at our surroundings and see what we're faced with. So before I start talking about the end times, I'm going to be talking about what is the world that we live in. So you will see that we all have become numb to the sinful existence that we're in. We think it's normal. We are accepting the outcomes of tragedy and sorrow. Because of that, history repeats itself. And we continue down the same path. That is why the signs of the end times exist. That's what we've been talking about. So in step one, we'll see these newsworthy items. None of it will be a surprise to you. And step two, after I spend some time on that, we'll understand better the signs of the end times. So, so far we have clearly talked about the first sign. Do you remember when Pastor Jose introduced the first sign? Many will be offended. And the second sign, is false prophets and false teachers. So the first sign and the second sign. Then pastor recently introduced, just last month, the third sign, lovers of themselves. Did you hear me say that? Lovers of themselves. But first looking at newsworthy items will help illustrate the signs of the end times that we have been talking about. Then we'll dive deeper and investigate further the third sign. Lovers of themselves. So buckle up, strap in, and hang on. So, would you like to know what's happening today? I would like to know. In the back. What? Where's the popcorn? No. So, what's happening today? What's happening today? We're going to be having a reminder of the first three signs of the end times. Then, we're going to look at the world that we live in today. Then, We'll talk about the delusional state we are in. We're in a delusional state. Then we'll talk more about the third sign of the end times. Lovers of themselves. Then we'll talk about the cultural behaviors of the end times. These behaviors, these signs you can see of lovers of themselves. Then we'll talk about what's certainly relevant today, the famines and the pestilence. The reason why I'm going to be talking about famines and pestilence, especially in what we're living in today, is it's the beginning of sorrow. It's in the Bible. Then all is not lost. Of course not, because God is with us. We'll talk about the hope for those who trust in the Lord. Say, trust in the Lord. So... The scriptures I'm going to focus on today, there's, there's two of them I'm going to focus on. It's Second Timothy chapter three verse two, and Matthew chapter twenty-four verse three through fourteen. So that's what we'll talk about. Now let's talk about signs of the end times, like in the movies in Hollywood. They talk about earthquakes, famine, wars, lawlessness. Well, it's not just the movies. Most Christians have some idea of the signs that occur during the times the Bible calls. The last days. Well, guess what? We're living in the now. See, I I thought my watch was broken. I thought the clock was broken. So we've been talking about the end times. The first sign that we've already chatted about was many will be offended. The second sign that we talked about was the false prophets, the false teachers that rise up started the introduction of lookers of themselves. We're going to be closing out that third part. We're the sign. It's coming to a resurrection center near you. So we'll be talking about that soon. So let's first look. Before I talk about that, we're going to first look at the world we live in, the landscape. What is it, the world we live in? Then I can talk about the signs of the end times, because it will be based on the world that we live in. That will help us better understand the signs of the end times. So let's look at the world we live in. Today we take so much conflict, distrust, and unethical behavior for granted. We accept it. We think it's normal. We have a short snapshot of what things are like today. Let's take a look at it. Here's a short snapshot. Here's the world we live in as it pertains to us in the United States. Let's look at the real signs and the triggers that show the reality that we are really living in the end times. After that, then we'll look at the third sign of the end times. And you remember that? Lovers of themselves. So before we apply the signs to the end times, let's look at... The landscape that we live in today. I'm going to talk about seven things very briefly. Very briefly. Um, Gun violence in safe settings. Safe settings. The global recession of 2008 and 2009. Not that long ago. The language in politics. Our leaders. How do our leaders speak? The Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and that whole situation. The Me Too movement. The January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. These are the Capitol riots. And COVID-19 and emerging violence. None of it is new. We've all heard that in the news. These are the real signs and triggers that show the reality that we are really living in the end times. Let's look at these first and then we'll dive into deeper the third side of the end times. And what I talk about, that will apply. We'll make the connection. We'll realize that we really are living in a world of the end times. Let's talk about gun violence in its safe settings. The Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting on December 14th, 2012, when 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people, including 20 children between six and seven years old. That was in 2012. The shootings have come at a relentless pace. They've been accelerating. Last year, in the midst of the pandemic, 2020 was the deadliest gun violence year in decades. And so far, 2021 this year has been worse. It has in city streets and in family homes, away from the cameras and far from the national spotlight. It's been swept under the rug. Through the first five months of 2021 this year, Gunfire killed more than 8,100 people in the United States, about 54 lives lost per day, according to a Washington Post analysis of data from the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit research organization. That's 14 more deaths per day than the average told during the same period of the previous six years. Number two, the global recession. Remember that? The global recession of 2008-2009. The financial crisis was primarily caused by deregulation in the financial industry. That permitted banks to engage in this hedge fund training of what is called derivatives. The derivative itself is a contract between two or more parties, and the derivative derives its price from fluctuations in the underlying asset. What does that mean? In English, it means basically false trust. False trust. It's false trust in the financial sector. Banks then demanded more mortgages to support the profitable sale of these derivatives that came from false trust. Because what comes from false trust? Unethical behavior. That created the financial crisis that led to the Great Recession. What was the outcome of the Great Recession? The over 4% decline in gross domestic product, GDP, that was only reversed for than three years, three years after the beginning of the recession. During the worst part of the Great Recession, virtually every segment of the U.S. economy was adversely affected. The U.S. House lost an average nearly 5800 in income due to reduced economic growth during the acute stage of the financial crisis from September 8th through the end of 2009. The main culprit of the crisis was the regulation and supervision. Supervision. That's Stewardship. That means people you need to trust. The entrusted regulators were not good stewards of financial prosperity affecting households. Move forward 10 years. The 2020 recession was the worst recession since the Great Depression. In April 2020, it was already worse than the 2008 recession in its initial ferocity. In November 2020, stock markets recovered and jobs were added back to the economy. But in 20 years, the entrusted stewards of our economic financial engine just pointed fingers, just pointed fingers towards each other without accountability. No accountability. It's a behavior that is destructive, that has ripple effects going all the way to our children. And our children are our future. The destructive behavior of not having accountability is now considered normal, which is why... History repeats itself. Number three, language in politics. You know, our leaders, the people we look up. Well, let's ask a question. Cursing in public. Is it legal? Well, although it's probably not a great idea to curse in public, most states won't punish you for it unless it is followed by threats or fighting words. Some states like Virginia still have laws predating the Civil War, which makes profane swearing a class four misdemeanor. But today, politicians have a long history of swearing, and they are the leaders we look up to and follow their example. They are a model, and we follow. The recording the White House during the Johnson and Nixon administration in the nineteen sixties and seventies document extensive presidential profanity. So I'm not talking about anything new. Andrew Jackson, check this out, Andrew Jackson reportedly swore so much that his pet parrot started imitating him to the point that it had to be removed from Jackson's funeral. <laughs> but for the most part, politician profanity has been either fleeting or shuttered behind closed doors until recently because of the technology that's available. Research by Analytics by GovPredict found that politicians' use of profanity on Twitter has taken off. In the three years ending in 2016, politicians tweeted a total of 408 profanities. Contrast that with the next three years, where profane tweets increased by nearly 15 times to 6,047. 2016 was clearly a turning point for how politicians use language. Number four, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, that whole incident. The Black Lives Matter is a decentralized political and social movement protesting against incidents of police brutality and all racially motivated violence against black people. The police killing of George Floyd, an armed black man in Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 25, uh, 2020 sparked protests across the United States and worldwide. Now, number five, the Me Too movement. Oh, by the way, Bill Cosby's been released. The Me Too movement with variations of related local international names is a social movement against sexual and sexual harassment where people publicize allegations of sex crimes. And I heard laughter when I heard uh, that I mentioned that Bill Cosby was released. It's true. He was released. Um, so he's uh, free. One of the biggest effects of the Me Too movement has been to show Americans and people around the world how widespread sexual harassment, assault, and other misconduct really are. Sexual harassment has hardly been erased in the workplace. Number six, January 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol, the Capitol riots. On Wednesday, January 6th, 2021, the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. was stormed during a riot and violent attack against the United States Congress. It was all over the news. It was all over the world. A mob of violent rioters attempted to overturn results of the 2020 presidential election by disrupting the joint session of Congress assembled to count electoral votes to formalize the president's elect's victory. Five people died either shortly before, during, or after the event. One was shot by Capitol Police. One died of a drug overdose, and three succumbed to natural causes. More than 140 people were injured. The assault on the Capitol generated substantial global, global attention and was widely condemned by politically leaders and organizations both in the United States and internationally. As part of the investigations into the attack, the FBI opened more than 400 cases and more than 500 subpoenas and search warrants have been issued. More than 500 people have been charged with federal crimes. Dozens of people present in Washington, D.C. were later found to be listed on the FBI's terrorist screening database. Did you get that? Did you get that? Dozens of people present in Washington, D.C. were later found to be listed in the FBI's terrorist screening database. And number seven, COVID-19. COVID-19 and emerging violence. Many of us are facing challenges that can be stressful, overwhelming, and cause strong emotions In adults and children, public health actions such as social distancing are necessary to reduce the spread of COVID-19. But they can make us feel isolated, lonely, and can increase stress and anxiety. Beyond getting sick, many people's social, emotional, and mental well-being has been impacted by the pandemic. They've been away from the Lord. Trauma faced at this developmental stage can continue to affect them across their lifespan. Emerging data shows an increase in calls to domestic violence helplines in many countries, many countries since the outbreak of COVID-19. Sexual harassment and other forms of violence against women continue to occur in streets, public spaces, and online. The COVID-19 pandemic has only intensified violence against women and girls particularly, but not limited to, the domestic sphere stay-at-home measures are compounding perpetrators and other mechanisms of power and control to isolate victims. Unemployment, economic stability, and stress may lead offenders to feel a loss of that power, which in turn exacerbates the frequency and severity of their abusive nature. The world we live in makes us think we are normal. We've accepted that. This is the soil that we're growing from. Think about gun violence, global recession, 2008 and 2009, and then the recession that followed, the language in politics, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, January 6th insurrection, the Capitol riots, and COVID-19, and more. This is the word. Think of how we're handling it. And this is why we have the signs of the end times. If you don't think about it, we become numb to it. We, be, we accept it as normal. That in itself is not normal. That's delusional. We are practically in a state of psychosis. This is when a person cannot tell what is real from what is imagined. Today we accept the ethical past as not normal. We accept the past as being too strict rather than being of order and of good taste. Years ago, LGBTQ was frowned upon. Today, it's celebrated with parades and national days of recognition. It even gets a presidential recognition. In the June 1st proclamation signed, Now, therefore, I, Joseph R. Biden Jr., President of the United States of America, by the virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim June 2021 as Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Pride Month. This proclamation spread throughout the world. In his speech, the president said, I quote, the month pride flags are flying, as some of my friends in our last administration, in the Obama-Biden administration, who are openly gay, they are flying in more than 130 U.S. embassies around the world. That's 130 embassies. That's acceptance in 130 countries. Then think about what we learned about Sodom and Gomorrah on a Wednesday Bible study recently. What should we know about the end times, and what, if anything, should we do to live out our faith in the midst of these turbulent times? Today, we are in a culture without faith. We're in a culture without faith. a culture disconnected from faith. And that gave life to it in the first place, and thus, ultimately, a fragile culture. Our continuing coverage of the signs of the end times include, number one, many will be offended. Number two, false prophets, which is false teachers. Number three, lovers of themselves, and number four, is coming to a resurrection center near you. Today, I continue with the third sign that Pastor Jose has already introduced: lovers of themselves. So today's agenda will be Second of Timothy chapter three, verse two, describing lovers of themselves. Number two, I will talk about the end time cultural behaviors. The behaviors of the end times. And then we'll take a look at the book of Matthew, which is in chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. That talks about the end times as well. So we'll dive into that. We'll talk about beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. What is that? That's the famines and the pestilence. But we can get through this. That's the last thing I'll talk about. We can get through this if we trust the Lord. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is lovers of themselves. And in 2nd of Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, again, that's 2nd of Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. And again, that is 2nd of Timothy chapter 3 verse 2. So what did the scripture just talk about? It wasn't a long scripture, but what did it talk about? It talked about eight things, eight things in that scripture. Number one, lovers of themselves. Number two, lovers of money. Number three, boastful. Number four, proud. That's being prideful. Uh, Number uh, five, abusive. Number six, disobedient to their parents. Number seven, ungrateful. And number eight, unholy. Those are the eight things. So let's, let's dive deeper into that, shall we? First, people will be selfish rather than serving others. By being selfish, actions of deception and manipulation take place so that a person can take advantage of their own needs without the thought of others. They focus on their own comforts. Second, evil people will be obsessed with wealth. Material things are not evil in and of it themselves, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And how do we know that? That is in first of Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 and I'll read first of Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs and again that's first of Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 these are people who put focus on material things like a big house a big car and unfortunately they show them off in a way that shows you who their God is. Anything that puts an attention away from God is a form of idolatry. So the love of money is idolatry. Third, let's talk about the third thing. These people will be proud, meaning they are preoccupied with people noticing them and their actions. This relates to concepts such as arrogance, but puts the expectations on others. A proud person not only thinks highly of themselves, they expect other people to demonstrate approval. So, what characteristics are seen in a prideful person? Well, pride is being selfish. Two, thinking excessively about stuff. The third one is the pride's base. The pride's base is just too much self love. And number four, thinking, the think, Thinking the worth of ourself is higher than it actually is. It's a kind of self-worship. That's number five. And number six, preoccupation with our image or self. You just can't get it out of your head. And number seven, pride is narcissism. It's in love with our image or self. Let's talk about the fourth one. Fourth one, such people will be arrogant. This literally means putting oneself above others. Being arrogant means overbearing pride or self importance. Another example of arrogance is when a person thinks he or she is never wrong. The definition of arrogant is someone who is full of self worth, self importance, and it tells and shows that they have a feeling of superiority above others. No one likes to be around an arrogant person since it is a quality that does not attract people. Yet some people may be arrogant and find it difficult to recognize them. Here are a couple of examples of signs that you're arrogant. One example. You are constantly late. There is nothing, nothing absurd in being or showing up late once in a while. This just may be a bad habit on your part. However, when you're constantly do this intentionally, this could be a sign that you are arrogant because you seem to feel like your time is more valuable than other people's times. That's arrogant. The second one, you interrupt others a lot. When you interrupt others a lot to show that you have something more important to say than what others are saying, it means you have little regard for the opinion of others, and this could be a sign of arrogance. The fifth one, these evil people will be abusive. The types of abusive behavior are designed to intimidate and control the victim. The abuser may deny that they have occurred or blame the victim for making him or her act in a negative manner. One is controlling through jealousy. That's one. Another is to blame others, to take attention off. Another is threatens to report to authorities on someone, such as the police, the IRS, or immigration. They use force in arguments, or it's physical assault. That's abusive. Sixth, these wicked ones would break the commandment to honor one's parents. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is a common thread for those who despise authority. Children who do not respect their parents typically do not respect anyone. Just listen to our youth today. Look at how the parents respond. Just observe the lack of obedience. Seventh, they will be ungrateful or unthankful. This closely relates to the ideas of selfishness. Very, uh, uh, the ideas of selfishness and arrogance. Those who are ungrateful typically feel entitled to certain things, rather than being thankful when they receive. They are angry when they do not. An example of entitlement is someone who believes they deserve better treatment, better service, and better circumstances than others around them without merit. People who suffer from entitlement issues often don't have logical reasoning for why they feel they should have better treatment. Self-entitlement is when an individual perceives themselves as deserving of unearned privileges. These are the people who believe life owes them something a reward, a reward, a measure, a success, a particular standard of living. Researchers in the field of psychology who study entitled individuals define entitlement as a personal characteristic in which someone has a pervasive sense of deservingness. Entitled individuals think they deserve more than other people, even when they really aren't better than others are. The entitlement mentality is defined as a sense of deservingness, or being owed a favor when little or nothing has been done to deserve special treatment. It's the you owe me entitlement attitude. Entitlement is a narcissistic personality. And eighth, the eighth one. These depraved people will be unholy, not truly desiring to live according to God's truth. God is described in the Bible as holy, which means set apart. And we see that in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. We also see it in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 in contrast these evil people are unholy immersed immersed in the fallen world this echoes an illustration that the Apostle Paul used in second of Timothy chapter second uh, of Timothy chapter 2 verse 20 through 21 and I'll read the scripture this is second Timothy I'm in chapter 2 second of Timothy chapter 2 verse 20 through 21 so of Timothy, chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. And I read, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And again, that's 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. God gives us a great invitation to these two verses. In his great house, there are only two sorts of vessels. Vessels for honorable purposes and vessels for dishonorable purposes. You are either one or the other. God calls you to make a choice. Which one will you be? So let's do a review of summary. What have I been talking? I've been talking about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, haven't I? So 2 Timothy, again, the scripture reads, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. So it was eight things. Remember that? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, being boastful proud, that's uh, being prideful, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. So I'm done at this juncture. I'm done with the 2nd of Timothy. Next we're going to talk about end-time cultural behaviors. These are the cultural behaviors of end-time. That's what I'm going to talk about now. So the end-time cultural behaviors. There's four I'm going to talk about. One, two, three, four. Number one, I'll talk about vulgar language and what that's all about. That's number one. Number two, the loss of decency. That's number two. And number three, three, the family at jeopardy. We'll talk about the family. And number four, sexual immorality. So, I'll talk about vulgar language. Number two, loss of decency. Number three, the family at jeopardy. And four, So, number one, let's talk about vulgar language. Vulgarity, in the sense of vulgar speech, can refer to language which is offensive or obscene. The word most associated with the verbal form of vulgarity is cursing. Vulgarity is offensive to good taste or morals because they are gross or obscene. But now it's been embedded into everyday common language. The definition of vulgar is something that is in poor taste, that lacks sophistication, that is rude or unrefined. Many of you know that I work around the world. And as I work around the world, people say that I talk funny. Do I talk funny? People say I talk funny. They say I'm missing words from my speech. These are people that are just learning English. They say I'm missing words in my speech. They know cursing swear words better than I do. They even use them grammatically correct in terms of how Americans use vulgarity. I asked them how they became an expert. Streaming TV on Netflix... Our children are exposed to this. And they already know English. Today when adults hear a young child use inappropriate language, they usually laugh or are shocked and do not respond. This can be confusing to a child, and it may make it harder to address the issue. In America, they have the right as Americans to cuss. We've we've given that to ourselves. God didn't give it to ourselves, but we've given it to ourselves. It's generally frowned upon, but Technically, here's my air quotes, not wrong or e- illegal. Over time, it is allowed. The language you heard on TV from the 1950s is different from today. Do you see the direction we are heading towards? The definition of decency relates to the personal quality of decency. It is one of honesty, good manners, and respect, respect for others. Years ago, kids were taught to treat others with respect and consideration. It relates to the importance of treating others with dignity. As a community, it's about mutual respect. Over time, decency has referred to manners, but today, decency is mainly a strong sense of right and wrong and a high standard of honesty. When a criminal or dictator does Horrible things, people assume they have no sense of decency. When a tasteless or violent TV show becomes popular, some people wonder if society has lost its sense of decency. We see the devaluing of the integrity in the workplace, in politics, in friendships, in romantic relationships. There's a growing trend of manipulation and deception and it's driven through selfishness. The greed-driven success comes from a flavor of underhandedness that has grown more acceptable than before. People have a greater and greater difficulty being honest and instead find it easier to say what the other person wants to hear face-to-face and then reveal their real intentions and feelings via actions, failing, or deliver or by reversing themselves later. This dangerous and disturbing trend will be harmful, and it erodes trust. That's the world we're living in. Granted, politicians were not always the most virtuous people, but they were at least attempted to project images of honesty and integrity. TV shows in the distance past that there was a balance depicted by people who would follow the golden rule and do the right thing with respect, with respect to the rights and feelings of others. That brings us to today. TV, movies, streaming content, and video games. Look at the video games. They're loaded with gross violence. Police are depicted violating rights and beating confessions from suspects for what they see as the greater good. People are slaughtered in great numbers with no regard to the sanctity of life. Is it any wonder that mass shootings are occurring with increasing frequency? Is it any wonder? Let's take a look at the next one the family at jeopardy. Here's the question what are we talking about related to a family at jeopardy? It's about broken families, unhappy marriages, unhealthy relationships, divorced couples. Abused spouse, husband, wife, child, dysfunctional children, troubled teenagers, and struggling, frustrated parents. A broken family is a unit where the family members have significant emotional issues or concerns with one another. As a child, you don't realize it, but this environment's effects are life-changing. There could be abuse. There could be neglect. And there's definitely a lack of support for a child or children in the family. Today, we see broken. It's no secret. You all know this in terms of statistics. Divorce is great. 50%. People are choosing not to get married and live in fornication. They have a back door in case it doesn't work out. The institution of marriage teaches us that in marriage, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about your spouse, it's about your children, it's about the institution of marriage that God created. A large population of people today come from broken families. The emotional stress of a divorce alone can be enough to stunt your child's academic growth in some cases. But the lifestyle changes and instability of a broken family can contribute to poor educational outcomes. Again, in some cases, when you come from a broken family, it feels like you're isolated and cut off from the rest of the world. Being so distant to a parent or a sibling often pressures you into feeling like you need to deal with it yourself. It never happened, but I remember when I was a teenager that my parents had the discussion of getting a divorce. Now, I'm one of nine children. I'm from a large family, so they spoke with us. And I remember, I remember the emotion. And they never got divorced. They were married for 58 years until their passing. But I remember, I remember clearly to this very day, like it was today, the feeling that I had. Imagine if it happened. It wouldn't be even that much greater. And that I can't imagine. Okay? So it hurts because it's sometimes difficult to understand why am this like this when you go through something like this? So I felt it. Um, so here are the signs of an unhealthy relationship. Number one, physical abuse. Your partner pushes you, hits you, or destroys your things. Number two, control. Your partner tells you what to do, what to wear, or who to hang out with. Number three, humiliation. Your partner calls you names, puts you down. Or makes you feel bad in front of others. That's an example. Now let's talk about the fourth item. The fourth behavior. Sexual immorality. First of all, immorality is the violation of moral laws, norms, and standards. That's what immorality is. It refers to it as an agent doing or thinking something they know or believe to be wrong. Let's just say it sexuality is God's design. It's not our design. It's God's design. That's why it's written in the Bible. He alone can define the parameters for its use, not us. Remember, it's God's design. The Bible is clear that sex was created to be enjoyed between one man and one woman who are in a covenant marriage until one of them dies. Matthew 19.6 says, Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Biblically, sexual immorality is defined as any activity, any activity, this is in the realm of sexuality, of course, that lies outside of uh, a marriage relationship, and biblically, a marriage relationship is defined as one man and one woman. Sexuality is God's sacred wedding gift to human beings in the Bible. An expression of it outside of those parameters constitutes abuse, abuse of God's gift. Abuse is the use of people or things in ways that they were not designed to be used. The Bible calls this sin. Adultery, premarital sex, pornography, uh, homosexual relations are all outside of God's design say, God's design. That's what makes them sin. Unfortunately, times have changed, and what was wrong in biblical times is no longer considered sin. In the New Testament, the word most often translated sexual immorality is perne. It's That's what it's called, perne. This word is also translated as boredom, fornication and adultery. It means a surrendering of sexual purity. I'm going to say that again. Surrendering. Surrendering of sexual purity. And it's primarily used of premarital sexual relations. From the Greek word, we get the English word pornography, stemming from the concept of selling off. Sexual immorality is the selling off of sexual purity and involves any type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of the biblically defined marriage relationship. I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 19 verse 4 through 5. That's Matthew chapter 19 verse 4 through 5. And the scripture reads, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Remember we talked about sexuality as God's design? Well, now you know. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 5. That at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This scripture relates to the institution. It's an institution, because God designed it. It's an institution of marriage, created by God, and written in the Bible, so that we can understand it. We, as a people, forgot that. So, what did we just talk about? What did I just talk about? We talked about the end times cultural behavior. Remember, I talked about four things. We talked about vulgar language, we talked about loss of decency, Number three was family at jeopardy. And number four was sexual immorality. So it's vulgar language, loss of decency, family at jeopardy, and sexual immorality. So we finished talking about the end times cultural behavior. Now we'll talk about what we can learn from Matthew chapter 24. There's a lot about the end times, that Matthew chapter 24. I'm just going to give it to you in a nutshell, okay? Um, And it's all about the signs of the end times. So let's take a look at what Matthew chapter 24 talks about. What can we learn from that? So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14, I'm going to read that. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14, signs of the end times. And I read, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. but See to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me, Jesus says. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. And so that is Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14. What I'm going to do, I'm going to simplify. I'm going to give you a summary of the whole chapter, Matthew 24. This is the summary of Matthew chapter 24. See, here's what happens. See, Jesus teaches them that they should take care not to be deceived by people who falsely claim to come as his representative after he has left them. You probably remember that as being the second sign of the end times. He tells them that although many terrible things will happen, that will alarm them and cause them to think that the world is ending. These will not be true signs. The events, the events predicts include wars, famines, and earthquakes. He tells them that the disciples themselves will be hated tortured, and killed because of their devotion to Jesus. He explains that many of his followers will fall away and betray the rest, and that false prophets will come and deceive many. Jesus teaches those who stay true to him and his teachings will be saved, and that the world will not end until the good news of the God's kingdom is proclaimed to the whole world. But when the world does it, it will be violent. It will be sudden, like lightning. His followers must not waver or turn back, but continue to follow God's teachings. He tells them that they must not deviate from what he himself has taught them saying. He was saying this, even if false prophets, given seemingly credible signs, do not be fooled. Jesus predicts signs like the darkening of the sun and the moon and then tells them he will return in glory. He says he will send his angels to gather his true followers to him. Though the world will pass away, his teachings will remain the true God for their survival. Jesus tells them that only God the Father knows when the world will end. So they should be ready at any time And always live in the way he has taught them. Our biblical teachings. In this way they will be sure of eternal life. In the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew chapter 24. Now you know chapter 24. This is Matthew chapter 24. Now I'm going to talk about famines. Pestilences. That means I'm going to be talking about COVID-19. So. While the term pandemic is a modern term and never used in scriptures, the Bible does use ancient Hebrew and Greek words for pestilence and plagues at least 127 times. That's a lot. Pestilence means a deadly and overwhelming disease that affects an entire community. The Black Plague, for example, a disease that killed over 30% of Europe's population, was certainly pestilence. Pestilence is also one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. While not every use of the words pestilence and plagues in the Bible refers to terrible and infectious diseases, many references do. Throughout the Bible, we see repeated examples of God using diseases to accomplish His divine and sovereign purposes. Because Pharaoh refused to set the Israelites free... God decided to punish him, sending 10 plagues into Egypt. These included the plague of blood. God ordered Aaron to touch the River Nile with his staff, and the waters all turned to blood. That's an example. So what are God's sovereign purposes for using such terrible diseases? Well, I'll talk about three. Executing divine judgment on an individual is the first one. It's uh, it's on an individual, a nation, or many nations for chronic, unrepentant sin. Did you hear me say that? Chronic, unrepentant sin. Number two, warning other individuals and nations that they too could face divine judgment for chronic, unrepentant sin. And the third one, shaking an individual, nation, or many nations so that they will wake up from the spiritual slumber. The spiritual slumber or rebellion or rebellion, repent of their sins, and turn in faith to a holy, personal, biblical, healthy relationship with God. You see, you see, in the Gospels, Jesus Christ warns his disciples that pestilence will be one of the signs of the last days of human history. A time of shaking the world to wake up and realize that Christ returned to judge and reign over the earth Is increasingly imminent. So we've been talking about. Matthew chapter 24. It tells us a lot. Now we're going to check out. We're going to check out this. Luke chapter 21. Verse 10 through 12. We're going to look at Luke chapter 21. Verse 10 through 12. In this passage we learned the same thing. As we learned in Matthew 24. So here is Luke. I'm going to read Luke chapter 21, verse 10 through 12. So I read Luke 21, chapter, Luke 21, verse 10 through 12. And the scripture reads, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. For my name's sake. The Lord God repeatedly warns the nations of the world beyond Israel that terrible diseases would be inflicted upon them in the future, both as judgment for chronic unrepentant sin, and to shape the nations and draw them to the Lord. No fewer than 12 times in the book of Revelation, God warns that a terrible pestilence and plagues will come to the nations of the earth as part of his judgment of sin. This is before the second coming of Jesus Christ. This period is known as the Great Tribulation, and it will involve the most devastating period of divine judgment for unrepentant sin In all of human history. I'll read to you Revelation. Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. And the scripture reads. I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And that's in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. You see, plagues are a way that God seeks to get our attention and give attention to God. They are an opportunity. Say opportunity. They are an opportunity for reflection of how we live and a reminder we are not gods ourselves. We're not gods. We're not gods ourselves. So let's take a moment. Let's take a moment. We've been through a lot in this message. There is hope for those who trust the Lord. Did you hear me say, I said trust, right? There is hope for those who trust the Lord. And I'll read to you Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7. But blessed is the one who trusts the Lord, whose confidence is in him. And again, that's in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7. To trust is to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of something. So when it comes to trusting God, that means believing in his reliability, his word, his ability, his strength. The Bible says that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. It's that God always keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Trusting in him means believing What he says. Trusting God is more than just a feeling. Trusting God is more than just a feeling. It's a choice, a choice to have faith in what he says. This is true even when your feelings or circumstances would have you believe something different. God does not change. He is the same yesterday. He is the same today. And he's the same tomorrow. God is worthy of your trust. Trusting God is living a life of belief in obedience to God, even when things are difficult. Because God loves you, you can show your trust in him. You can show your trust in God by praying all about your feelings with him. Don't let your emotions rule your life. Bring them to God so he can help you. God is not disappointed or frustrated by your struggles, doubts, or pain. He cares about you. And you can trust him with all those things. When you trust, you go to God and his his word, God's word, when life is hard. You also act on obedience and trust that God will ultimately take care of you. In trust. In trust, God will give favor and provision to you. God will give you favor and provision to you. You won't do this perfectly, but God is kind and patient with you while you're learning to trust Him. So what happened today? What happened? To what happened today? We've been seeing the signs of the end times. And I give you examples of these newsworthy We saw that the first sign was that many would be offended. Pastor Jose completed that segment. Then we talked about false prophets and false teachers. Today we closed out the third sign of the end times. Lovers of themselves. So you know what that means? We're ready for the fourth sign. Would you like to know what that fourth sign is? That's right. He said it. He said it. It's coming To a resurrection center near you. So stay tuned. That's right. So what was our journey today? What what did we do today? What was our journey? We did eight things. We had a reminder of the first three signs of the end times. That was the first thing. Then we took a look at the world we live in today. Then number three, we took a look at the delusional state we are in. Number four, we had more on the third side. Lovers of themselves. Number five, we talked about the cultural behaviors of the end times. and number six, we talked about famines and pestilences, which is the beginning of sorrows, sorrows, I should say. And number seven, we talked about the truth, that there's hope for those who trust the Lord. Our focus today was a second of Timothy chapter three verse two, and in Matthew chapter twenty four verse three to 14. I'll pray for you. I'll rise. Lay it on foot. Please rise if you're physically.